Hi everyone, welcome to Pocha So What. Yo soy Maggie. And I'm Lenny. This is episode number five of season one. As we shared in the last episode, one of the biggest feelings our community faces is the feeling of isolation, alienation, and that no one can understand us. Today we'll be sharing Las Pocha's biggest discovery in our journey. We discovered that we are not alone, no estamos solas. We're not. We discovered that our community is actually very diverse, is big, and is all around the world. But particularly within our experience of Estados Unidos y Mexico, one of the challenges our community faces is the lack of official numbers. As we mentioned, even in Mexico for many years, we were not recognized as a población, como lo dicen en México, vulnerable, or a population that required a certain attention, programs, and laws created specifically for us to be able to have un retorno digno al motherland. But we did find different numbers, desde censos, to some articles to give you and us some insights of how big our community is. As history has shown us, till around the 80s, the migration between the United States and Mexico was very circular. It was a lot of men, más que nada, that would go to the United States, would work ciertas temporadas or in certain industries, and then would be back with their families for Christmas time or to be able to spend the rest of the year here. And then they would go back to work and then come back. But with the uprising of militarization and el crecimiento del border and the wall as we know it, it became more difficult to cross. And this created the opposite of what their policies were trying to do. Now men were bringing their families and now families were staying. We were being raised there. People were being born and doing life in the U.S. Mexico lived a boom del retorno during the financial crisis, harsher immigration laws, las políticas anti-migrantes, and the persecution and the mass deportations that our community lived. And we tapped a bit into this um, in our last episode as well. Deportation as we know it isn't something new that came to be during the Trump era. We actually saw record-breaking numbers during the Obama era. And some of the numbers that were reported by the DHS between 2008 and 2015 estimate that there was around 3 million deportations that rose that year, which 71% were actually de Mexicanos. And that estimates to be around like 2,130,000 paisanos y paisanas que fueron regresadas. But at the same time, within those deportations, something to point out is that the majority were men. And within the numbers of deportation, there are some women that fall into there. And there are some underage as well that fall into there. But at the same time, if we start to analyze, we could kind of see like if you would deport the man, uh, por consecuencia and how many of our family dynamics work, or even just inflict fear within the households, usually the family would also become returned um, migrantes in this caso, no? And forcibly returning because of the fear of deportation or because they had no option. In 2017, when we came to Mexico City, we actually were able to see the intensification of arrivals of deportees by plane. So we would see um, three weekly arrivals cada martes, miércoles y jueves, Uh, with an estimated total of around 400 deportees arriving to Mexico City per week. We also found some numbers de la Encuesta Nacional de Ocupación y Empleo, 
who recognized three phases of our community that lived between 2005 and 2008, even though we do and have met some community members that arrived before those, um, those dates. So one, el retorno adquiere su máxima expresión en la segunda mitad de los años 2000. So we saw a big boom, like we shared in the beginning, uh, due to the financial crisis and the persecution of our community. Um, but in this, they actually recorded a record number of 337,000 migrants that were coming back annually to our country. And this is something that grew exponentially from years before. And also between 2010 and 2014, we did see a reduction, but and it went down from 300,000 to 100,000 migrants coming back every year. And then between 2014 to, in, in this report, it was till 2018, el retorno se ha quedado como por alrededor de 100, retorno eh, de 100,000 migrantes al año. So I'm not good with math. I actually suck at it. <laughs> but just seeing those numbers and, 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 we can realize that we're not a couple hundreds, that we're not a couple thousands, just simply in one point in history of our deportations, we're millions. So, no estamos solas y no estamos solos. Yeah, I think that that's a, a reality in our community, no? Que no, I mean, that, I mean, those numbers just like, yeah, can can impact everybody or, or all of our listeners and can give us a big picture the reality is that they're even still very conservative numbers mm -hmm. because, again, no hay algo que esté contabilizando everybody that returns with a deported loved one or everybody that just returns because they are afraid of deportation or different different, different circumstances in the United States, especially now um, that we know that with Trump and everything como... But see, como it was harsher for, for people and for, for immigrants and documented immigrants and everybody under Trump. But, I mean, a lot of people were in a lot of vulnerability. And also because of the pandemic, like, we know yeah. that a lot more people, this is solo hasta 2018, so we still don't have numbers of, like, everybody that will be returning or has been returning to Mexico because of the pandemic and the economic crisis, not just the health crisis, but... um pues sí, como ya mucha gente no, te, no puede trabajar and, and paying yeah. rent is not sustainable. There are no uh, relief, economic relief for undocumented families. So they're facing the reality of maybe if they have a little casita in Mexico, pues they're coming back or they're still being deported. Mm -hmm. And so after all of this, um, we wanted to share a little bit about how we... Um, like how we found out that we weren't actually alone. Who was the first community member that we met? Um, in my case, I I mentioned in the last episode that I came back in 2008. I came back to San Luis Potosí, which is the capital of the state of San Luis Potosí. And I tried to like survive <laughs> without support networks for the few years. And it wasn't until... I think it was until 2013 when I, um, I I was on social media and I met someone, a dear friend, shout out to Claudia, who is back in the U.S. now. But I met her through social media on Facebook, actually. 
And de hecho también estaba Lili, who Claudia introduced me to Lili as well. But the, Claudia, in this case, she was born in Mexico and migrated at a very young age to the U.S. And her husband got deported. So she returned to Mexico with her son, her U.S. citizen son, and to come with her husband. Unfortunately, she struggled a lot as well to try to adaptarse a México. Le tocó vivir como mucha violencia en el estado where she was living. Um, her family, her mom, her sisters, todos, todas están en, en Estados Unidos. So I started to talk with her and Lily, and I think we were just basically like we would listen to each other and like just comfort each other through social media. It wasn't until Claudia actually told me about a convocatoria que se llamaba Los Otros Dreamers. And that's the first time that I started to meet even more community, uh, more deportees, more returnees. But I'll be tapping a little bit more into that. I think that when I met Claudia, I was still in what I described as a black hole, like very alienated and in my lowest point. And that was in around 2013. And what about you, Lenny? So mine also was around that time as well. Yeah. Um, so by this time, I had already graduated high school. And because I had a high school, Mexican high school um, diploma, it was much easier for me to apply pues, a la prepa. Digo, a la universidad, no? Ya no tuve que face that obstacle. But I did have to let go like of my dream of wanting to become a nurse. And I settled to study um, in one of the few universities in Mexico that doesn't apply, como Historia de México en sus exámenes admisión. Um, or even, I think it did have a part of literatura, but it, it actually had more like logic and it even had an English section. And this led me to a Jalapa, Veracruz, which was the capital of my city, of, or I mean of my um, estado, which is Veracruz. And I started to work in a Walmart as a cashier, and it was like 10 minutes away from my facultad. And one day that I was talking to my mom, running from one place to the other, uh, there was a, a car wash between those two points. And while still in Veracruz, you're still cautious, even though I was speaking like Spanglish or English to my mom, uh, was there's this guy that popped out of nowhere from the car wash and like stopped me in my tracks. And he asked me de donde era. And I, I had never met a community member. So I couldn't even like right off the bat identify him. Immediately what went through my head was like red campanas, no like, like what's he gonna do to me? And I tried to like play it along como I had learned English in school. And he was like, no, no, no. Like, where are you from? And then I finally perked up my ears and I heard his accent. Mm -hmm. I heard como un, un English de allá, no? And I guess it had been so long that I had even heard that, that like, I, I just didn't know how to, how to interact with him. <laughs> like, I, he freaked me out, la verdad. And he told me like right there, Okay, he had gone to the U.S. when he was like one. He was 22 when I met him, and he had just been recently deported um, from Chicago. And he was studying uh, Los Sábados en otra universidad que I lived really close by. Jalapa is full of universities. And that he was working in a car wash, and he was living with an aunt that he had never met before. And because I was kind of still como dices in that hole myself, mm -hmm. I was still throwing myself a pity party by, by, by that point. 
that I, I can't even remember his name. And shout out to Naye, what she shared, uh, we had a retiro where a bunch of community members of us um, gathered this weekend. And she mentioned, Noah, of one, of one person that impacted in her life, and she doesn't remember his name. And I do not, por más que intento recordar, remember his name. And I wish I would have been in a different state of mind as I am right now to have been able to create another type of relationship. But because of him, it made me realize I wasn't alone. And because of him, he sparked in me like, I want to find my community. And if I could find him, who else can I find? That's really interesting. I mean, I think that como, yeah, the fact that y'all can't remember like their names. I mean, obviously y'all were in your own process, but like I was also reflecting um, that when I worked in the English school between 2009 and 2012, I, I mean, I did all sorts of jobs in that school. There's the administradora, teacher coordinator, cleaning lady, todo lo que se podía. Um, but I met a bunch of people that had a perfect English, I interviewed them because they became teachers in the school where I was working. So like I had interviews with them. I talked for them. I worked with them, but I never questioned where they came from. If they, I didn't even ask them if they had lived in the U S like, I didn't even ask them where they had learned their English. And I was like, okay, that's enough. Como you're working here, your family, where do you live? Como cosas así. And it was in English because the interviews had to be done in English to know their level of, of English. Pero nunca me metí como en sus vidas de preguntarles como si habían vivido allá. And they also didn't share it with yeah. me como... So that was kind of interesting. Now that I go back or I think back, I'm like, I met several of them, but I wasn't in a good position and in a good moment that I just blocked it as well from my like everyday social life. Y me imagino que ellos y ellas también. Yeah. Yeah. So when would you say that you started your activism path or how was it? Or... It's, it's still, it's, that, that word activism is still, it's still weird. Um, because I think like ta speaking with a lot of community members, no, like, I don't think any of us like ever saw ourselves like in, in, in este camino, no, como mm -hmm. de lucha y de resistencia, no, mm -hmm. but how I started it. I, I fell into it and it sparked, como te digo, after me meeting this guy. And I, I, I was actually carrying this shame in, in university. So I went to a business school and then I, and then I went to anthropology, but, and I'll, I'll share that further on in this episode, but I started off in a business school. I was studying international business management. So there was a lot of um, rich kids going into my school and I actually got exempted from the first day of going to the English class uh, because the teacher, he heard me speaking English. Uh, oh, because there was this girl from New York, Stephanie, um, who actually is a U.S. citizen, but she actually came to Mexico to study here because it was cheaper. And then she was going to go and like do a master's because she's like, why am I going to play like an undergrad that is so expensive when I can just do it here and then apply like for further degrees in, in the States, no? Mm -hmm. So so I actually got to meet another person, but with a whole different story, you know what I mean? So we both got exempted in the first day, and we were both known as Las Gringas. Mm -hmm. But it was very different. Whenever they would say, I went to Disney, low-key in me, I would say, I went to Disney too, but I was undocumented. 
Uh, or like, like you went in with the visa, no? And I still carried that shame and como es ese feeling of dirtiness. And there was somebody right next to me that was born in the U.S., no? But is of Mexican heritage and that has that mobility, who also did all of these things that I did and who also had all of these experiences of being raised there, going to elementary, going like to middle school. But the difference was like I was there in quotation marks, illegal, no? So I carried that around a lot. And it wasn't until I met um, this guy that I came out, you could say, to one of my teachers um, who her name is Gordillo, Dolores Gordillo. She is like, by now she's like this almost 80, 70 something year old, old lady que siempre llegaba a, las, a la clase con una bolsa because in her caminata she had picked up garbage from the streets and she was the, like this old lady that in her times estuvo muy activa en los movimientos sociales y estudiantiles que se vivió en México um, that were very, very powerful and han marcado mucho nuestra historia en México. And I came out to her that I was that I had lived undocumented and that there was a lot of things that I wasn't understanding in class because I hadn't known like La Historia de México, no? And she was actually the one that taught me más Historia de México. And she was the one that taught me about the entrance of NAFTA and lo que pasó con los bancos en el 94, and I was born in 94. So como a lot of things started to make sense, and I started to understand for the first time that it wasn't my fault, and it wasn't my parents' fault either. And until I finally was able to recognize that, I was finally able to shift como my anger, to shift my, my feeling of suciedad, to something more of what I call now as activism, no? Of wanting to raise a voice and not ever want somebody else to experience this, no? Or to do what I can so somebody else doesn't have to go through this. And particularly when I opened up to her, it was in 2014. I think I had already been in school for like two years. And pasó lo de Ayotzinapa. And she had told me already about humanities, like conversating with her. She's like, Lenny, I think you should check out like Humanidades. Mm -hmm. um, and Humanidades en la Universidad de Veracruzana era muy conocida por ser una escuela como de chairos, mm -hmm. ser una escuela eh, de activistas, de, de estudiantes que siempre andaban de revoltosos, como esa era la fama que tenía. And cuando pasó Ayotzinapa, that was my first, first protest. I went with her and another friend, Ariel. Um, this, so it was the three of us. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I marched in the streets. Jalapa is known for its neblina and for its lluvia in las tardes. It was so powerful. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm already getting teary thinking about it. <laughs> we marched the streets. Like, for the first time, I realized, like, I am a citizen in the sense of I realized citizenship doesn't particularly give you una vida digna, ¿no? But for the first time, I felt out of the shadows mm -hmm. in Mexico because I still felt in the shadows for like four years of being in Mexico. And um, we marched the streets and just being surrounded by the wave of people taking the streets and walking in the rain, um, raising our candles, raising our voices. I found my voice that day, that night. 
And I remember we finished it off in, se puede decir, en la plaza, en la iglesia principal de Jalapa. Eh, creo que me invitó, o nos echamos un tequila, me invitó un tequila, un bolillo, para el susto, no sé qué cosa. I don't, I, it's a little blurry there. But just walking alongside una viejita de sesenta y pico años at that time, um, with another friend, I just felt so powerful, and I felt like, we have a voice and we need to use our voice to uplift, to demandar. In that case, it was to demandar la vida de los 43 estudiantes que habían desaparecido, no? And I'm going to pass the mic to you and I'll dive in a bit more of my journey. But that was the first, I could say, impactful night that I realized my voice is, some, is a tool, is a weapon, I would say. Wow, that's very powerful. And I still like I'm still like surprised and shocked on how like interconnected our caminos were. Um it, I mean, I think it still really blows my mind because I mean, I've also shared like I was very active in my community in Dalton como super activa en, en diferentes lugares. And I think I became even more active after I realized what being undocumented was and I started to get more involved with with the Latino community in Dalton. Um, but still, I, I had other dreams. Like I wanted to be a nurse or even a graphic designer, photographer, como esos eran las cosas that I was thinking. Um, but una vez ya llegando a México and like going through this like four or five year period of like just isolation and alienation and being in this black hole. And like, I consider that was my lowest, lowest, lowest like stage in my life. Um, but then after meeting Claudia and Lily and, and, and hearing about just the phrase Los Otros Dreamers, that by that time, I mean, ya había pasado DACA, mm -hmm. um, and, and it was like 2013, so acababa de pasar DACA eh, poco tiempo después. And just Los Otros Dreamers was a convocatoria, so I just, Claudia just shared it with me. She was like, oh, look, you can write your story um, if you want to be, like, respond to this convocatoria. Because writing has always been an important outlet for me um, to be able to, como, soltar my emotions and stuff. So I did write my story um, to Los Otros Dreamers, convocatoria, and I submitted it. And I think it took, like, a few weeks until I heard back from some folks. And they were returnees, um, and yeah, returnees. And I met the researcher who was behind the convocatoria, which her name is Jill Anderson. Yeah, we'll hear a lot more about her later on. Hi, Jill. Yes, now she's one of my best friends um, and, and partner in crime in so many cosas. Este. But back then, um, pues sí, como I wrote my story, I talked to her like a couple times over the phone. Um, And then, and then pasó como un año sin saber de ellos. And I was like, oh, I don't know about the project, maybe the book, or no sé qué está pasando. And it was until the beginning of 2014, cuando ya me contactaron otra vez. Um, but also, in ese tiempo, también Claudia eh, shared about a campaign que se llamó Bring Them Home, which was a very famous campaign in the U.S. where several young people um, who were undocumented, algunos de ellos, crossed to Mexico to organize with deportees and returnees and try to get them back home. It was actually, well, it's been the only campaign that I've known where people in the U.S. are actually taking an action to bring people back home. And this happened in ese tiempo. 
And I remember that Claudia, again, she sent me the Google form and she was like, look, if you want to join the campaign, she was like, I'm going to join it. I don't like, she was very, como ya, desesperada también, um, because of all the violence that she was witnessing in her family. And she was like, I'm joining here, like, if you want to join, pero tienes que venir así como mandarlo y en cuanto te contesten, the next day you have to go to Nogales. And I was like, oh my gosh, should I do it? Like... And I llené la, el Google form, I remember. And then, for some reason, como que se fue el internet or something, that it didn't get sent. And ya meses después, como ya pues pasó todo lo de bring them home, y se fueron a la frontera, nine people, eh, se llamó el Dream Nine. They organized, they crossed the border, they were in detention center for days, but they had a lot of support, the media, and everything that many of them, or all of them, were released and some of them, their process for asylum and other, um, como es, pendings migratorios are still going on. But meses después, so I heard from los otros dreamers, and they told me that I was selected to be one of the 26 um, historias in this book. And this book is basically made of 26 stories of people that, mostly young people that we were born in Mexico but grew up undocumented, and we're back in Mexico por deportación, eh, por eh, que habíamos decidido como, quote, unquote, regresar. And in 2014, in September, justo the same weekend que pasó lo de Ayotzinapa as well, um, we were presenting the book officially in one of the a very famous museum que se llama Museo de la Ciudad de México. And they flew 21 out of the 26 que participamos in the book. And it was a whole weekend of being aquí en Revolución, en Casa de los Amigos. And it was my first time coming to Mexico City. So, like, first of all, I didn't know, like, <laughs> this huge city existed. Y ya empecé a conectar, a conectar with other returnees, deportees. We slept in the same room, las mujeres. And it I was just... Loved to it was <laughs> it was the first time that I was speaking English fluently. We were walking through Paseo de la Reforma por el Ángel at like one in the morning looking for a Wendy's. Um, <laughs> and it was just so powerful just knowing that I could connect with a lot of people in person, that we could understand and relate each other. We took like a bunch of workshops at a, a, of cómo estar en the media and how to like como seguir doing organizing mm -hmm. and it was just a weekend but after I came back to San Luis which was also the first my first day of college happened that weekend um, because I started to go to college on Saturdays and I had to give up my first day of college to go to Mexico City and ya de regreso como I was super inspired I was like I need to find other people in San Luis there has to be other retornados there like deportados what can I do and, pues sí, como after that, I was very connected with, with people in Mexico City, en otros estados, desde Mérida, Nogales, Tijuana, Guanajuato, all over the place. And so that was like one of the first moments where I was like, I'm not alone. There's many of us. There's a lot of work to do. We need to continue fighting to be able to meet more people. Um, so that was like the pre, my pre moment. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, the well, no, not that I think, I mean, I'm sure. The, the day that I consider that I started this path in activism, um, we haven't tapped into it, but in 2015, justo because of the book, Los Otros Dreamers, I was invited to participate in the University of California in Fullerton 
they invited me to go present the book. Um, they sent me a letter of invitation. Um, I applied for a B1, B2 visa, which is a non-immigrant visa, eh, que pues es muy conocida en México como la visa de turista. Um, aunque también tiene una parte negocio. que se puede usar para hacer negocios o conferencias o participar en, en cosas así. So, we're going to have a whole episode where we're going to talk about mobility and visas because that's a whole 10-hour podcast. <laughs> um, but just to say that the fact that Well, I'm going to give you a little como, spoiler alert. I was pretty privileged enough and pretty lucky enough that the officer um, at the U.S. Embassy was in a good mood and had a good night's sleep, and she authorized a 10-year visa for me in 2015. So, yo ya tenía aquí casi ocho años uh, of being in Mexico in exile, and suddenly I have this piece of plastic that gives me authorization for the first time in my entire life, to go to the United States. Um, and as I said, we're going to share in, an, in the next episode a lot about that process. But I remember that, I mean, it, there were a lot of emotions and, and it was, yeah, its own thing. But just being there, I realized that I had this mobility, I had this privilege And I knew that I was ready emotionally, mentally, physically. I was ready to step up and do something to also support a lot of friends and community that I had already met and that were in Mexico, in exile, away from their families. And I wanted to not just have a visa and then go back to Mexico y como lavarme las manos y decir, okay, um, thank you, like... I, I always say that I got my visa because of the community, because of activism. So I think that in 2015, in the fall of 2015, that's when my true activism, like a very conscious activism path began because I knew that I had a responsibility, a commitment, um, and that I was ready, like, como emotionally, as I said, I think that's very important um, to feel that we can step up and we can contribute back to our community. 100%. I think maybe something interesting is como dices, no, being in in that mental space and just being ready to be able to accompany somebody else. And in my case, after I met my first community member, it actually took me como unos dos, tres años to mm -hmm. meet other returnees. And deportees in my community. So after I actually decided to apply for anthropology. And if like any Latin Latinx uh, members are hearing us and stuff, pues uh, primero mis papás estaban como Lenny, like you're going to go to humanidades, like they already knew la fama sobre activismo que había dentro de esa facultad. And being in Veracruz. It, it was always very targeted. And de hecho, en el 2015, eh, hubieron cinco estudiantes de mi facultad eh, que fueron golpeados por policías um, y fueron atacados en sus cuartos. Um, and they were um, activists for territorios and environmentalists. So our, mi facultad, ya by that point, I was accepted. Mm -hmm. And I started to assist to, to Humanidades. And I can say Humanidades for me was like, Uh, activist 101 prep. Mm -hmm. It was intense. 
to one be surrounded by people that believe so hard in their cause like believe what they said and would back it up and understand that everything I had learned like in school I was deconstructing it now and I was understanding even more like the bigger picture uh, and I kind of became the go-to person in anthropologia of return migration like everybody knew like this is the topic I was studying and it was because in Paz Descanse mi maestra Betty who was my first teacher in anthropology, her first assignment for us was to write why we were here. Mm. Because como antropólogos, that I never finished it, <laughs> pero como antropólogos, pues parte de nuestra, de, de nuestra formación y el que hacer del antropólogo es qué vas a dar para la sociedad, ¿no? And in my case, that was like the second time I came out. But this time I came out loud and proud. Mm -hmm. So con, con, in business school, it was just like low key with my teacher kind of whispered. And here it was like I wrote, raised my hand to, re, re, to read what I had written in my journal. And I said I had lived undocumented in the U.S. And I am here to find my community. And I am here to like study and understand what happens to us and what, what we need to do to like fix this basically. <laughs> so that was like my second and most like that was a moment that also was very impactful. And I actually started more con activismo con migración en tránsito mm -hmm. before retorno. Uh, because I was living in Veracruz and because at that moment there was a lot of persecution de nuestra, que there is always, no? El México ha sido otro muro. Um, pero en este caso Veracruz with the narcos that were there, uh, migrants were one of the most like persecuted people that were easy to capture and, ex and, ex and extorsionar, no? At that time, estaba levantándose mucho el padre Soralinde. I met another dear friend, Ernesto, who is un chingoncísimo activista, mm -hmm. que de hecho estuvo con la comunidad eh, en Ayotzinapa y escribió un libro y estuvo con los familiares. La UV también interactuó mucho. Um, and he actually invited me to Las Patronas. And con las patronas, I was able to just one just be in the field, just be out with my community and understand that migration isn't just one, and migration isn't just migración de retorno, sino que migración y cuando alzo mi voz lo alzo para todos y todas las migrantes que tenemos que pasar por estos muros o que nos han negado el derecho de movilidad de familia por estos muros impuestos, ¿no? Um, so I actually started my journey más con la comunidad centroamericana, and then I found a academic that was well known in the university for actually already be studying like migración del retorno, Carlos Garrido, and I actively started like lifting up my ears, and I actually realized in business school in my own class there was two migrantes del retorno, ahí, two friends of mine. And then I met another girl in anthropology and we actually wrote like this proposal, which won like a national prize where we were invited and I was chosen to speak in the Senate. And I told them like in their face, like we are here and we need like, you guys need to adapt us and like integrarnos a su sistema y todo eso. Um, and got to sit down with Rectoria in my school and basically plantear como there are thousands of us that are trying to enter schools here that are being denied education and we need to help and make this process a lot more accessible for our community. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole journey. Yeah. And for the, and I also wanted to clarify, Las Patronas are a group of women, badass Super women in Veracruz that um, prepare food and give food to migrants who are uh, on the train. Pasando. Mm -hmm. and they throw food literally to the trenes and they mm -hmm. feed them. Um, and also at Yotzinapa, pues, uh, I'm sure a lot of you know, but it's also a group of students who were... 43 students. 43 were... students in Guerrero um, who were pues, kidnapped um, by the state. I mean, ya queda muy claro. Queda muy claro que fue el Estado. Este, and they were disappeared. And until now, pues, ya las investigaciones, pues, ya han arrojado, ¿no? Que efectivamente fue el Estado en... en, en pues como sociedad seguimos reclamando y seguimos eh, exigiendo justicia eh, porque pues fui, fue una desaparición de estudiantes eh, por manos del Estado, como este crimen autorizado, como también dice otro, otro eh, un abogado en El Paso, ¿no? Que, que eso es una realidad de México. Yeah. Um, so, desde Ayotzinapa, que pasó igual en 2014, um, pues creo que que ha sido una marca y una huella y una herida muy profunda en, en la sociedad en México y en es quienes bien. luchamos eh, por defender a, pues sí, como los derechos humanos. Eh. And, pues, we can tap into how we met, entonces. Mayday! Mayday, which, also before that, también, eh, igual cuando se presentó los otros streamers in 2014, that same weekend that... Uh, Ayotzinapa happened that same weekend also the first delegation of dreamers with advanced parole came with to Mexico came to Mexico City under the administration de Peña Nieto and it was very interesting like everything happened the same weekend Ayotzinapa which anger and como indignación and then los otros streamers on one hand like esperanza and revolution and getting together and like we like como encontrándonos como comunidad and then you had this group of um, DACA recipients that had um, gotten advanced parole and many of them were coming for the first time in, in many years visiting their grandparents for the first time being in, in this country It was very painful to, I mean, I participated in many spaces with them, um, with uh, also with other compañeras at that moment to talk about retorno y deportación. And it was, it was very como interesting, the dynamic. I mean, muchos de ellos pues venían con una agenda de turismo, ¿no? Con una agenda de, even though they, they I mean, they were also coming to Mexico for the first time, um, Many of us, like even me, like I was still very, pues como que in this black hole, no acabando de salir, acabando de conocer otras personas. But I knew that they had like a ticket back yeah. to the U.S. and they knew it. So it was really hard for them to really connect with us in the sense that that they like they didn't feel like they were gonna be here in Mexico forever or that they couldn't go back to the U.S. Um, it was They had a different agenda, and, and we were all in a different moment, but I question a lot. And a lot of the responsibility is also because organizations um, in the same government, como que nos dividía, como que no invitó in this case of a course, los otros streamers. Of course, because they know if we join, we're stronger. Of course, they know that. So, <laughs> so ellos ya sabían de nosotros, and they didn't organize like a space to be together and have a dialogue and be like, 
pues, what can we do, no? Yeah. Um, I know that even some friends interrupted one of the conferences that they had to say, like, hey, we're here, like, we're los otros dreamers, because literal, the book, así se llama. We're here and we have to stay. <laughs> exactly, no, este, so that was interesting, just to, to mention that. Y después, May Day, 2017, so what happened? So, actually, because of what I was already doing, this led to a book fair en donde una de las mesas, because we were pushing a lot the agenda of Migración Retorno en la Universidad de Veracruzana, um, I had heard about Los Otros Dreamers. My mom had actually seen Maggie and Jill on TV, and she called me up and she said, Lenny, there's people like you on TV! And that was like an eye-opener. And I, I, I wanted to get my hands on that book. And when I got my hands on it, it was, it was also another moment that just pushed me even more to find my community. Um, pero I actually got to meet Jill in una mesa de diálogo que tuvimos del book fair. And I got her, she signed, I think, El Libro de los Otros Dreamers. And she told me about May Day that there was going to be a protest. And I told her that I would be there. <laughs> and just to give a quick, uh, like, también como some context there. So that was in 2017. Yes. And by that time, I had a visa. I had gone to the U.S. Yeah, a couple of times. Ya había ido a Georgia también and visit my family. And Jill and I, justo in California in 2015, decided that we wanted to continue beyond the book, that the book had already created some sort of momentum mm -hmm. and had already, like, brought people together and we knew that it was that it was important to continue the work so we decided to co-found um otros dreams and acción oda which officially you'll hear about oda and you will hear a lot more mm -hmm. from now on but oda is otros dreams and acción who is a is a group of um an organization now uh, a non-profit a grassroots organization in mexico city so we founded oda in 2000 15. In 2017, in March, we became a legal nonprofit in Mexico. And in May of 2017, I was going to go to Georgia for the second time to visit my nephew and my brother and my family. But I went to, and it was also the first time that I was, I mean, I was officially moving to Mexico City, mm -hmm. which that was a whole other thing. But I remember that I took all my stuff from San Luis Potosí to Jill's house, my friend. And I was I, I was gonna go to May Day, but like the next day I was gonna go to Georgia. So like literally, I remember she came back like on May second or May third from Veracruz, mm -hmm. and she was like, "Oh, guess what? Like I met this girl who like <laughs> she's a returnee. She's in Veracruz. I invited her to the May Day. She sounded very excited, and I was like, I don't think she's gonna come to Veracruz just to the hey, May yo, Day. Watch me." <laughs> I was like, okay. She was like, she's going to reach out to me or something if she comes in this weekend. And I was like, okay. And then ya cuando llegaste a la casa de Jill, um, that's when we officially By the way, met. thank you, Ma, for paying my ticket because I had no money. <laughs> <laughs> so ya cuando llegaste ahí, she like introduced us. And we didn't really talk because we were like, let's go. Because we literally had... We were basically out the door ya and metiéndonos al metro. Yep. It was, and it was my first time coming to the city like by myself for the first time, actually. <laughs> so we took the metro with like Gaia and yeah. Jill's partner. Y llegamos corriendo a... Secretaria de Relaciones Exteriores, which is right in the Centro Histórico of Mexico City. 
And that's where we had our, our first protest, como, tanto como Oda, but also where Lenny and I met mm -hmm. and many other yeah. allies. Um, I think we all met there como montón, un grupo de personas that have been in the movement for migrant rights in Mexico City. Yeah. Yeah. So that was powerful. Yeah. A partir de ahí, it all started. And then, <gasps> like... A couple, a few weeks later, you moved to Mexico City because I we convinced moved. you. Yo ya estaba aquí, but I still didn't have an apartment. So, like, I convinced her to move to Mexico City, even connected her with a job. And as you can see, like, my chispa was encendida. Like, yeah. I literally moved in less than a month. Like, got a job, we found a depa in less than a month. Yep. I think that was very, like, como que nos conectó, because I was originally going to move with another friend from León, uh -huh. y al final she stayed in León with her parents, and I was like, oh, okay, then I'll just see what I do by myself. Like, and then oh, when... esta chica de Veracruz. <laughs> you were like, sure, I'll do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> on my birthday, we rented our yeah. room yeah, on yeah, May yeah. 27. yeah, yeah. Which was 27 days after May Day. Que yes. nos conocimos. So, like, 27 days after we met, we moved in together. There's a lot of things that, like, <laughs> our paths, like, cross. Now Weird. that I think about it, 27 days after. Y eso que yo estaba, en, <laughs> yo estaba en Estados Unidos for, like, 20 out of those 27. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 2017 was the year Las Pochas met, que we came to the city, and we started our journey in a more organized way, I should say. You with Oda, me, I joined this social enterprise called Ola Code. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, it was Code School. Mm -hmm. And it was just me and Marce, who is the the founder, I should say, of Ola Code, who has now left the space. Mm -hmm. And I myself left it after three years of being there. And Ola Code for me was a space where I thought I could bring together my business school with what I had learned in anthropology and with like my social justice, eh, flama que pues estaba ahí, no? And I think from in, in the beginning it did. And it was able to touch many lives and it was able to support many community members uh, that were able to join Ola Code, which was a coding school basically for returnees and deportees and refugees. Um, and be able to support them, give them a support network of desde la educación hasta acompañarlos a obtener un empleo, no? Unfortunately, nearing the end after three years, in 2020, um, before the pandemic hit, I took one of the most difficult decisions in my life, which was to quit. Because for me, that was my dream job. And for me, I, I thought I was I was able to reach my community and do social justice and all of this and that, no? But at the end of the day, it, we live in a capitalist society and our investors, um, I, I guess I came to realize that the company had grown and había ganado tanta fama que ya estaba más ambición, que realmente el apoyo a la comunidad, no? So I needed to tap out and I then joined Ola. I quit Ola Code without having any idea what I was going to do in my life, but I just knew that I wasn't in the right place anymore. And if something other than like working in Walmart and things like that, because cuando tienes que trabajar, pues tienes que trabajar, ¿no? Pero ya at this point in my life, it's like, I want to do what I love. And I want to do what I love in a space that I believe what I say. 
And I, I would pitch for Olacode as a company. And in the beginning, I would pitch and we, I, I supported in raising up a couple of millions of business dollars. I don't know at that point, no? But at the end, I couldn't anymore because I, I didn't believe in the concept anymore. Mm-hmm. And then in March or February, March. Maggie calls me over to Ola <laughs> and says, hey, Lenny. <laughs> and then I joined the team of Ola. So I'm currently part of the team of Pocha House, which we'll be sharing a lot more as well. Um, in this case, virtual Pocha House because was 2020 pandemic hit. And this is where we are now. We finally were able to launch the podcast. I think in the... Upcoming episodes, you'll understand a bit more why personally for me, it took me a lot more time because when Maggie and I met, the first thing we come, we talked about was like having a, a YouTube channel or, or like starting something for a community. And we started, we shared the concept Bocha for the first time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things happened in life that, that made me once again, go back into my shell. Um, but I was still with the community but I think 2020 was a year of healing for me personally and a year of like letting go of a lot of stuff. And I'm very happy that we were able to start Bocha So What. Yes, Bocha So What is a pandemic result. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> finally, haciéndolo because... Floreció I mean, de la adversidad. Exactly, like mm-hmm. literal. And just to say that everybody's welcome in Bocha So What. If you want to tell your story, this is a space for you. Yeah, and I think further on, you guys are going to start to meet a couple more community members. And we are very excited to, to share and, and to get to know everyone more and more. Yes, please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, sobre todo. Este, just hit us up if you if you want to join, if you have anything to say, anything to share. Um, this is the space to do it. Um, and what are we going to do in our next episode, as we mentioned already? Oy, so in our next episode, we are going to tap into that word mobility. And in both of our cases, ironically enough, our activism was what actually led us back to the United States. So stay tuned for that. Stay tuned. We'll be diving into it um, really soon. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.